0: So, Chris mentioned that uh, our faith sometimes looks like a journey going from doubt to faith. And for the first two weeks of June, we've been looking at
1: Habakkuk, kind of titled A Journey from Doubt to Faith. Our lead pastor, James Roberson, is taking the month of June for his sabbatical. So, last Sunday, we were joined by Pastor Kenny Hart. He's the pastor of Evangelism and Community at Christ Crucified Fellowship in Washington Heights. Brought a great word. And today, the lead pastor of Christ Crucified Fellowship... Brother Rich Perez is going to come and close out this series on Habakkuk, Journey from Doubt to Faith. Brother Rich, we're ready for you. Cool. You guys hear me all right? Yeah. Cool. Well, let me go ahead and pray for us. And uh, I won't waste any time, here right? God, thank you so much for this time. Uh, thank you for this opportunity that you give us to be here. Uh, your people gather singing your praises. Uh, because of what you have done. God, there is no more beautiful sight than that. So, God, I'm so grateful uh, for the ministry here at the bridge. I'm so grateful for the ministry here out in Brooklyn. Uh, God, I'm so grateful that I can serve uh, the Robeson family. i so grateful for their friendship their love, their service, their own suffering, how they give themselves to you, God, and ultimately give themselves to your people. So, God, thank you for the opportunity to give to them and to serve them. God, I pray that you would refresh them like they've never been refreshed before. God, I pray for this word, as our brother said, that I will simply be your vessel, your, your mouthpiece, God. I don't want people to... See me, but I want people to see Jesus. So, God, help me to do my the best job that I can to get out of the way for people who see Jesus. God, that I would simply be like Elijah who built the altar, but you brought the fire. So, God, would you do that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, listen, I am uh, really excited. Is this like a, a cue you guys need us up so I can know what time to get out of here? <laughs> Go um, well, hey, listen. I'm really excited to be here. As Josh said, my name is Rich. Oh, yeah, we're done. Cool. Issues with the mic's fine, that I had Thank you, brother. All right, cool. So hey, listen. Really excited to be here. Uh, if I'm really honest, uh, what I'm most excited about is that I get to speak out for um, it really does bless my heart any opportunity that I get to share uh, what God has said to me uh, and what God has spoken to me uh, about my own life and about my friend's life. Because uh, you guys are friends. So I'm grateful uh, to be here. But I'm also very, very excited to be up here because I know that it is of service to your pastor. Um, I can't tell you enough how much I love your pastor and his family, uh, what his friendship means to me what his example uh, is to me. Uh, so anytime I get to come serve, uh, Uncle—I mean, excuse me, uh, <laughs> Pastor James. <laughs> Pastor James, uh, it's it's an it's an exciting thing. So thank you uh, for letting me serve you guys, and thank you for letting me be here. So Habakkuk. How many of y'all even heard the name of Habakkuk before this Sunday? Okay, okay. Well, I'm really excited because Habakkuk teaches us a lot about ourselves. As Pastor Kenny said last week, Habakkuk is really a story of our struggle. When we see Habakkuk struggle, we oftentimes see ourselves struggle. In our church, we preached this and it took us eight sermons just to unpack what Habakkuk was going through. And here we're doing it with you guys in two weeks. So there might be some things that I don't mention There might might be some things that I emphasize over other things, but I don't want you guys to interpret that as the only things that God is saying in this book. There's so much that God is saying, but what I'll emphasize uh, this afternoon with you guys is what I think God spoke about uh, to me and what I think we can take away uh, in connection to what we see going on today. But Habakkuk is really a book, not just about a confusing name, but about a man who struggles the way that we struggle. A man who complains the way that we complain. A man who is wrestling with God the way that we should be wrestling with God. I don't know if Pastor Kenny said this last week. I heard the sermon, but I don't quite remember him saying this. But really, Habakkuk gives us an example of how to complain to God. That there is a way that we can complain to God. That God is not afraid of our complaints. We are not bullies, and God is not afraid of questions. God is not afraid of science. God is not afraid of your reason. And so there is a way that we can actually come to God in his presence and complain and not be struck down. That on one hand, we are able to complain by saying, God, I am committed to you, but help me understand what you are doing. Because I am confused. I am committed, but I am confused. Therefore, I have some complaints. But you see, unhealthy complaint says, I don't understand what you're doing. I am confused. Therefore, I will not complain." Sounds like a teenage relationship. (laughs) But when we look at Habakkuk, what we're learning is that he's really much like us. That Habakkuk says a lot of the things that we want to say to God. In fact, in the midst of suffering and injustice of something that we can relate to in our day, Habakkuk actually stands up and asks God some questions. God doesn't run away. He doesn't sit behind his throne. He stays on his throne. And he gives him some real answers he's not afraid of questions. I think what we've learned through the book of Habakkuk and what we can learn from the book of Habakkuk is that there is a way that we can say, God, I'm certain of you, but I am yet not certain of why you do the things that you do. And some of us in this room might be sitting here and saying, you know what, I know who God is. I'm confident in who he is, his character. There is a way for us to be certain in the character of God and yet somehow still be uncertain of why he does what he does. And that creates some tension, doesn't it? God, I know you to be a good God, but why are you allowing bad to happen? God, I know you to be a God who is near, but why do I feel you so far? God, I know you to be a powerful God, but why are you not stopping the injustice. It creates some tension, and I think tension is good.
0: Lord,
1: Go might bust pipes, like J C said, right? Brooklyn, huh? So, <laughs> pressure, the bust pipes. Come on, guys, you're Brooklyn. Let's get that. <laughs> right? It creates a healthy tension, a tension that will allow for us to know God deeper, more clearly, and therefore get more intimate with God. Understand just a bit more why he does what he does. So, one of the things that we learn from Habakkuk is that questioning is
0: okay.
1: I think one of the things that we learn as we look at Habakkuk is that there's a little more than just his question. He's saying, God, why are you allowing injustice to happen? Why do you allow the righteous to be swallowed up by the unrighteous? Things that he said in chapter 1 things that he goes on to say in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. God, why will you allow those things? You see, Habakkuk questions him, and he gives him specific questions, but I think we can be confident that there's a little more than that. And in those questions, what we're really asking for is, God, why do I feel so relationally distant from you? Then when we say, hey, why is there a justice... God, why don't I sense you? Why are you not striking down the unrighteous? Really what Habakkuk is asking is, God, why don't I sense you close to me? Because you see, Genesis three—excuse 2 tells us that we were created for relationship. So all of our questions, political, whatever have you, all of our questions are relational questions. We all desire to be close with the divine. We all desire to be close with God. We were created for relationship and ultimately relationship with God. And so our questions are such. Our demands and what we confront God with is asking God, I need you close. What well, Habakkuk is really asking God is for relationship. A relationship that offers him security. If there's anything that our generation struggles with the most, it is security and identity. We don't know who we are. We don't know what things will give us security while we have social media devouring of our lives, for the most part. When we ask God questions, what we're asking God is, God, how can I sense you to be a God who is near, a God who is close? Really what Habakkuk is asking for is a lot of what we're asking. We just sang a song about it. Really when we question God, we're asking for a relationship,
0: and we're asking for God to give us a place for us to settle our feet securely.
1: God, I need to put my feet down somewhere where I can feel secure. Where I can place my feet down and not feel like anything can push me down and anything can cast me off. I need a place to really set my feet and feel confident. And so when we look at injustice, and when we look at suffering, and when we look at temptation, and when we look at trials, really what we're asking God for is saying, God, would you help me to find a place where I feel confident that I can stand in, that I can lead others to help me to feel that security. That's what we're asking God. For. Family, if there's anything we've learned from the human experience, whether you're from Brooklyn or Washington, if there's anything that we've learned from this human experience, is that life is filled with instabilities. I'm sure. Listen, I have a beautiful wife. I have great kids. have got a great church family back, up, back uptown. There's a lot of things going on in my life. And I praise God for that. But there is no denying that there is a lot of things that are unstable. No denying. That there are things in our lives that because of our shared life experience, our shared human experience, this life is filled with instability. Things that you don't know how they will turn out. And life has taught us all that. From people who betray us to health that will ultimately fail all of us the things that we value that disappoint us. Life has taught us that our experience in the world is more like open waters rather than a pool, a local pool. What I mean by that. If you guys have been to the open waters, ocean of the sea, you know how scary the open waters are. This isn't like a local pool. We got a local pool uh, back up town, it's called Highbridge Park. Not that huge, not that big, but it's where everybody goes. When you go to the local pool, you've got people all around you. You've got barriers, you've got lifeguards, you have a community of people where you can have some sense of confidence that if something goes wrong, if the water, stout, if the water starts to overpower you, that there is enough people around you, including lifeguards. The fact that the pool is only three feet deep, right? You should probably <laughs> be in the water if it's overpowering. or whatever. But listen, anyways. You have enough confidence to know that somebody will take care of it. You see, that's not the case in open water. It's not the case in an ocean and it's not the case uh, in the open sea. Open water has moon swings if you've ever been at sea. Open water, there is no certainty. I always like to think of the ocean. I was recently on a trip with some dudes uh, and we were in this huge uh, Atlantic ocean. Um, I like to think that the ocean is kind of like a a terrible a toddler in its terrible twos. Like a pregnant woman going into labor. I've got two kids and I sat uh, in the delivery room both times. Listen, let me tell you don't mess with a pregnant lady in labor. Alright? But open waters is like a toddler in its terrible twos and a woman in labor. What do I mean by that? Toddler has this. Mood swing where you don't know what they're going to do in one moment or the next. And I think that the open waters are like that, but it's also like a woman in labor who has supernatural strength. Where you just don't know where they're getting that strength from. And so you've got this fusion between a mood swing of a, the mood swing of a toddler in its terrible twos and a woman in labor with supernatural strength. That is open waters. And you see, life is more like open waters than it is an open that it throws you and it tosses you around and sometimes, sometimes, it beats you up. And it fades your perspective. And you start to lose vision of what was once promised to you. See, life has the tendency of beating you up. Listen to this poem. It's by a guy named James Reeves, English guy. He says it this way. The sea is a hungry dog, giant and gray. He rolls on the beach all day with his clashing teeth and his shaggy jaws Hour upon hour he knows. The rumbling, tumbling stones and bones, bones, bones. The giant sea dog moans, licking his greasy paws. But on quiet days in May or June, when even the grasses on the dune play no more their reedy tune. With his heat between his paws, he lies on the sandy shores. So quiet, so quiet, he scarcely soars. This is life, family. And I think we're starting to see it a little bit as we unpack the story of Habakkuk. That Habakkuk's life, as life for us, does not stop. People in leadership, people in power, people in control can tell you. Or maybe people outside of power, people outside of leadership can tell you. That life does not stop simply because you want it to. It continues on without you. Like open waters, our lives are filled with inconsistencies, instabilities, leaving the human, the human heart longing for land. Life leaves us longing for a place to stand confident. And very rarely does life give us that. What we need is somewhere to set our feet and stand securely and confidently. So here's what I want, here's what I want us to take away this afternoon. In a world as unstable as ours, faith in God is what we need most. In a place as unstable as ours, faith in what God offers is the most secure footing that we will ever find. And so I think as we look at what Habakkuk is teaching us, if we look at the exchange and the dialogue between God and His creation, as we look at the exchange between God and His prophet, I think there's several things that we can. I think there's three things that I think are important for us to understand, and I want to give you guys some practical steps moving forward. So this is how we're going to spend our time. We're going to spend our time talking about the the reliability of God's word. We're going to spend our time talking about the deception of self-worship. We're going to spend our time talking about the beauty of God's Son. This is exactly where we're going. So you're not wondering where I'm headed. We're going to talk about the reliability of God's Word. If we're going to stand securely in life, in our great city that we love so much, in the instabilities of life, if we are going to stand securely, we need to know the reliability of God's Word. We need to understand the deception of self-worship, and we need to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then once we're done with that, we're going to talk a little bit about what Habakkuk teaches us about prayer. Then we're going to talk about what Habakkuk teaches us about justice. Let's look at this first piece. The reliability of God's word. Look with me in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me. I'm going to stop. Hold oh, no, on, let me keep going. And the Lord answered me write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may one who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. I just want y'all to catch this for a second. I just want y'all to catch what's happening in verse 3. There's a couple things happening here. Verse 3 says, the vision awaits its appointed time, so it, it has an appointment. right? It's supposed to come to us at a certain time and a certain place. It has its appointed time, but it also hastens to the end. It will not lie. So it's hastening to the end, and if you know anything about hastening, it's, it, it, in the Greek it's literally like, like, a, like you're gasping for air. You're moving so fast that you're gasping for air is what that word in the Greek means. It hastens to the end, but if it seems slow, how does something that hastens to the end seem slow? Just throwing it out there. If it seems slow, wait for it. Of course I'm gonna wait for it, it has an appointed time, doesn't it? There's all sorts of funky things happening here in the text. Wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Okay, so it has an appointed time, it hastens to the end, but yet it seems slow, but it won't delay. All sorts of funky stuff happening. here. I just want you to cast that. We're gonna talk about that in a second. The reliability of God's word. But hey, before I get into the reliability of God's word, please don't miss the first part of verse 2. Please don't miss it. If you know anything about what Pastor Kenny, I think Pastor Kenny preached on verses uh, uh, verses 6 through 11 of chapter 1, alright? Kind of? Some of y'all missed missing on Sunday. Okay, so <laughs> Pastor Kenny spoke about um, Habakkuk's first complaint, or rather, yeah, Habakkuk's second complaint. I think he kind of centered around that. So Habakkuk complains. Somehow, he complains one time. God answers him, and somehow he complains again. I don't know how that happens, but he does anyways. But don't miss the first part of verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Listen, if we miss this in light of the entire context of the letter, we've missed a whole bunch. God actually has the patience to respond to Habakkuk. Once again, God is so kind and so patient to respond again to Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts with a complaint. Then God offers him an unexpected response. He says, "Okay, I heard you, but I'm going to bring more injustice. I don't know. That's what he says. Then Habakkuk has the audacity To respond again to God. To complain again. I think God in his grace responds again. And I think he does it so beautifully. God actually responds again to Habakkuk in the face of his second complaint. If we brush over this, we miss a huge chunk of what God is already doing in this letter. And what he could be doing in your life.
0: This
1: is the lesson. This is the simple truth that we get, Just from God's faithful response to Habakkuk. If we faithfully and persistently ask, we will get an answer. If we faithfully and persistently knock, a door will open. If we faithfully and persistently seek, we will find what we need. Family, are you hearing this? That if we faithfully and persistently knock, ask, God will give it. If we miss this simple truth, it'll be easy to believe that God does not respond to us. If you miss the fact that God actually answered her back again, it'll be really easy for you to get out of this, uh, leave this sermon, leave this service, and think that God never responds to you. And let me tell you what happens when you don't think that God responds to you. Our hearts become hard and bitter, and ultimately they fall into despair or entitlement just what's happening with Habakkuk. You know, back in chapter 1, verse 5, I said, listen, I've been speaking, I've been doing it. you're just not looking. Habakkuk's heart had become hard, bitter, and therefore he became a very despair, desperate, and entitled person. Self-righteous, like most of us in the building. If we miss this simple truth, we will become entri- entitled. But, but listen to the real tragedy. The real tragedy will be that our dialogues with God will quickly move from monologue to dialogue. We will easily remove God from the conversation. And all we will do is point the finger at God. And all we will do is speak words to God. But you see, the beauty about Jesus' death is not only that we can walk into the presence of God and make requests, but even greater, even greater family. The beauty of the gospel that Jesus has come and made a way for us to exist in the presence of God is not so much so that we can make requests to God, but is that we can sit silently and listen to the words of God in right one way. And if we become hard and if we miss this little simple response that God actually answered her back, we will become entitled and we will transition from monologues with God, excuse me, from our dialogue with God to monologues with ourselves. That's not even what I wanted to say. Let's continue. The verse goes on to say this. Write the vision and make it plain. Now let me give you a read for a second. got to talk a little history on this. Because it, it, it's going to help us understand what God is saying. In the Old Testament, when God wanted to communicate anything, he would do it through a king, he would do it through a priest, or he would do it through a prophet. And most of the time, it was through a prophet. prophet is literally... Uh, like what you would call a pastor today. A guy who gets up in the front, shares what he senses God saying from what he's already written in our case. And he communicates the heart of God, he communicates the sentiments of God, and hopefully people see that and are transformed. Now, the way to capture those moments is typically by using tablets, stone tablets.
0: The primary responsibility
1: of prophets was to... Oh, yeah. I'm
0: looking
1: for my mic. What is
0: this? I'm Anyways, I'm sorry.
1: But the primary responsibility of a prophet was to be a steward of God's Word. And being a steward of God's Word means two things. It means being someone who preserves the word of God and yet someone who broadcasts the word of God or preaches or proclaims. Broadcast is a similar word. So our responsibility as stewards of God's word is to preserve it and broadcast To preserve it and to proclaim it. To preserve it for ourselves and for others and to proclaim it to ourselves and to others. And God tells the back that write the vision and make it plain what well, God is mostly concerned what is he saying when he says, write the vision and make it plain? What God is mostly concerned with is the accuracy, the preservation, the practicality, and the echo of his words. In other words, God is saying to Habakkuk here, listen, I'm painting a picture, and I need you to get it right, keep it the same, keep it simple, and share it with everybody. So if I were to take this really arcane phrase, this really antiquated phrase, what he's simply saying here is, you guys remember Bob Ross? <laughs> Come on now. Throw that at Come on. Now, mm-hmm. friend. Right? the joint painting DBS? Yes. Come on, girl. That's what talking about. It. He's simply saying, listen, I'm painting this picture. Keep it the same. Keep it simple.
0: Get it right and share it with everyone."
1: And so God is saying, listen, I know you're in the midst of injustice, I know you're in the midst of suffering and trial, but I've got a word for you that you need to preserve. Not just a word for you, because I need you to preserve it, because it is going to be a word, not just for your generations, but for the generations that are coming after you. And so when we read this, we are a perk up. What is God actually saying? You see, my word is reliable, is And my word transcends time, cultures, and generations. All of this, family, is set in the context of suffering. I really don't want us to lose that. He is suffering. And there is a lot of injustice that is happening in this book. And I know that we can relate to this because of all the things that we're seeing in our country nowadays. What God is making utterly clear is that what we should value most is what God says about himself, about you, about us and our our situation. You see, oftentimes when we are in the heat, Jeremiah 29 talks about the heat of a moment or the drought that we go through. We don't think about what God says about us. We don't think about what God says about himself, himself, and we certainly don't think about what God says about our situation.
0: But God is saying here, when he simply says
1: write the vision and make it plain, what should be most valuable to us, family? is what God says about himself, what he says about us and our situation. The vast majority of our situation, however, does not appraise God's word the way that he asks us to. We do not appraise God's word the way that God has called us to appraise his word. And that's okay. Something that we need to wrestle with. But as I said before, the two greatest hindrances of our generation is both identity and security. We don't know who we are and we don't feel secure with much of what we have in our lives. There is a brokenness about all of us. Isn't it? There? there is a brokenness about all of us. I'm sure that if I asked any one of us in here, hey, tell me, tell me, tell me what's good with you. We'd we, we have a long list of things that we, would, that we would say. But if I say, hey, tell me, tell me what you can work on, what are your growth edges? I guarantee you we have a much longer list. A much longer list. You see, because we are our
0: worst critics.
1: Because in some ways, there is something broken about us that God desires to fix. And we don't really like that. That makes us uncomfortable. Especially as New Yorkers, especially living in a very liberal city. We don't like to think that there is something broken about us. We'd rather say that there's something different. And though there is Differences that we hold there is fundamentally something broken about all of us. That our bend is not toward human solidarity as much as our liberal friends might think. But our bend is more toward self-absorption. We think first about ourselves rather than we think of others. And there's something broken about us. And we know that there's something wrong. We see it in our relationship. And if we're honest, part of it is probably due to the social media mentality. Now I'm not here to bash social media, I use it all. I try to leverage it uh, for the good. But sometimes I do indulge in my selfies. Right? I do. For my ussies. I just, that was all when you have a lot of <laughs> I don't have any help with that. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with our social media mentality. Because with social media, the mentality is more easily It says that we give our lives to a multitude of voices. I put up a thought on Twitter. I put up a picture on Instagram. I put up a post on Facebook. And there is, in some ways, a sense of wanting to share my life with the rest of the world. But I think we've morphed social media to care more about what people will say about what we share than about our sharing. How many likes we get, how many retweets we get, how people will comment to this picture. We've given ourselves over, ironically, to many voices in the social media mentality with the exception of one voice, the voice of God. What does God have to say about us? I think we've excluded God in our living, and in our engagement. You see, it's interesting to me that we hinge our our somewhat broken lives and we put them on the hands of other broken people.
0: We hinge our
1: seemingly broken and unstable lives on the impressions and perceptions of other broken and unstable people. And if you know anything about hurt people, they hurt people. If you know anything about broken people, if you're aware, aware of yourself, you know that broken people only more, ex, uh, expose more broken
0: Now when are we going to expose ourselves with the goal of healing?
1: Now family, this is not to say that I think the thoughts and perception of other people are unimportant. But I think there is great danger when we place great faith in something or in someone who will not be able to sustain us. I know my wife is comfortable with me sharing this. I've shared this in the past. But my wife is not number one. God is number
0: one. Because if I'm
1: going to love my wife best, I need to love God most. I need to learn love from God in order to give my wife the best love that I can give her and my kids. There's real real danger in putting your life in the hands of something that cannot sustain you. Not a bank account, not a career, not a relationship. Those things will not sustain us. And I know that we think that they will in some ways. We'll talk about that in a second. But ultimately, they will not sustain us. God offers us something much better. God offers us something more reliable. Look at verse 3. He says, make it a vision plain on tablets. On tablet. When was the last time you heard anyone in the scriptures say anything about writing something on tablets? Exodus, is that what y'all said? That's what y'all said, right? Exodus, right? Moses. Y'all said Moses. I heard you. The last time we hear anything about, anything written on a tablet was in Exodus, chapter 31. It says this, when God told Moses this. And he gave to Moses. and And when he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, or of his word, another word for that, the tablets on stone on which he wrote with the finger of God. You guys remember the context of that story? Moses climbed to the top of Mount Sinai he needed to hear from God because the Israelites were just at the bottom. They were just out of control. God, I don't know what to do with this stubborn people. You called me to bring them out of Egypt. They were good for a minute, then they wild out for another. Then they became good again. Now they want to build a golden calf. I don't know what's happening here. Let me go meet with God. And God said, I'm going to write some things on a tablet. I want you to take that down to them so that you have some kind of guide on how to relate to me. And he goes down the mountain and he brings these tablets and they're wilding again comes down and his face is shining. But listen, the, mo- the context of that moment was also suffering and injustice, and even greater injustice, not taking God at his word, not seeing God as most beautiful, not being aware of our need for God is a greater injustice. And so we see in the context, Moses bringing this tablet, and he gives Moses this word, that will bring solidarity and faith to the Israelites. And I think in the same way, God offers Habakkuk a word of reminder of a promise that he once made. See, if you know anything about prophets, they carried the promise of God all the way from Abraham. That there's a promise that came from father to father, to generation to generation. From judge to judge, to king to king, to prophet to prophet. And Habakkuk was no different. He knew the promises of God. But somehow, way, because of his experiences, he had forgotten. And God reminds him once again of how he did it with Moses. He desires to do it with him. And I think as he did it with him, he also desires to do it with others.
0: He's made a promise
1: to him to be a God, to do a transformative work in him and his people, his commandments. You see, commandments more as dues and those, they're really opportunities for us to engage God in what was lost in the garden. Adam didn't break rules in the garden. Eve didn't break rules in the garden. They broke relationships. And what God is trying to do by saying, hey, write the vision and make it plain on tablets, let me remind you of what I once did. your forefather, Moses. Let me remind you of what I once did with Adam, of what I once had with Adam, that you would pursue it again, relationship with God. The law God gave Moses, it serves as a guide to us, but it also serves as a mirror to us. Because when we look at the law, we see our own problems. I think it's so important that as we look for something reliable and confident to stand on, that we would once see that it's not in ourselves. And God gives Habakkuk this law so that we would find a place for us to sit confidently. You see, God has given Habakkuk and he offers us something much more reliable than ourselves, something much more reliable than our relationship, something much more reliable than our careers or our bank account. God is is offering to us the reliability of his faith Word that has gone from being a written word to a living word in Jesus Christ. What else do we see God sharing sharing with us here? Not only do we need to hold on to the reliability of God, but I think we need to gain more clarity in the deception of self-worship.
0: Let's look at verses
1: 4, the first part 5, and I intentionally skipped that that second part of verse 4. He says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall, excuse me, not uh, upright within him. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His deeds is as, his his greed is as wide as sayo, like death he has never, he he has never enough. Oh, He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his his own all people. Now, let me just give some clarity here. God is speaking to Habakkuk, but I think he's speaking of four different types of people. when he's uh, referring to this this soul that is talked up. A couple people that I think he's talking to here. I think he's talking to the king of the Chaldeans. Now, this is just a little bit of history. But here, Habakkuk is dealing with the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So I think when he says here that this person's soul is puffed up, he's talking to the king of the Chaldeans. I think he's also collectively talking to the Babylonian Empire. And then I think he's describing two different people, two other people. An arrogant man,
0: then a righteous man.
1: His soul is puffed up. Now if you know anything about the Babylonians, they were by far the ruthless, the more ruthless people in that time. I know Pastor Kenny last week spoke about the different ways to connect, make that connection. And right, that the Babylonians are kind of, uh, the LA people out in the LA, the Syrians are kind of New York, and then the Israelites are all Vermont, right? That's what he said. I would have said Long Island, but what I'm saying. joking, joking, right? Right, but the Babylonians were this barbaric and ruthless people. Kind of the way some of our marginalized and oppressed people see authority. People that kind of came in and were entitled, barrack, and overpowered those that were with less The Marginalized, the ones out in the outskirts, outcast by society. And I think verse 11 of chapter 1 gives us an even greater description about the Babylonians that we absolutely cannot forget. He says this, Then they swept by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. You had a people here that were drunk in their own power. I mean, how do you feel? Let me pause for a moment. How do you feel when you're given responsibility after that? I worked at the Gap right my, my wife, and I was very proud of being the denim specialist. Very proud of being the denim specialist at the Gap. And I remember I was promoted to the fitting room. I was very proud of that as well. Something happened in me, very small. Something happened in me where I just, I just felt like I was the DM. Like I just got promoted to the fitting room. I was the district manager all of a sudden. Started to run things in the fitting room. My wife came, my then girlfriend, she's still my girlfriend. Came in the fitting room, just wanted to do stuff. I was like, whoa, I am the DM of this fitting room, young lady. Like, don't you try to run things. Right when we're given a little bit of power, we can kind of get a little drunk in it. Think about it in this way. God creates all of the universe, God creates all the animals of the land, all the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and he creates this beautiful place. And then he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, Man, go run this place. You can even name the animals. Adam goes and he looks at at, the, at, at this long animal with a long neck. He says, I'm gonna just call that a giraffe. It, just, it looks like a giraffe. It looks like it should be called a giraffe, so I'm gonna call it a giraffe. And he starts walking down the garden and he's like just feeling himself, like I, mean, I, I gave these animal names, I'm running this, I'm cultivating the land, I'm the only one of my kind, and then you know, God put me to sleep, gave me a woman, I'm like, I'm just feeling the game out here. So I just start feeling really good about myself, then what does God do, right? We, we kind of just you just start feeling ourselves a little bit. But then God does. He's so wise. He puts something in the middle of the garden. Then then you, right, you guys know where I'm going. He puts something in the middle of the garden. And as and as Adam starts walking down the garden, really feeling himself, he's like, "Yo, man, I name these animals. I'm cultivating the land. You know, I'm leaving my wife. I'm just killing the game." And then he walks by this tree. All of a sudden, he's reminded he's not. Here. He walks by this tree, he looks at it, and he's like, that's right. I'm not in charge.
0: Because the minute I touch that tree, I'll
1: die. You see, we have this lust for power. And you might be sitting in here and saying, I don't want power like that. Well, you want it in some degree. You might not want to run Brooklyn. You might not even want to run Park Slope, but you definitely want to run your house. And you want to lord over the people in your house. You see, it's not about how, how much power you want. It's about the, it's about the, it's about the God-sized lust that we have for power. That's the
0: key. And so in the same
1: way, these are the Babylonians. And they had this hunger for power. And with every person that they conquered, they became more drunk and more drunk in their own power see what the Babylonians valued most was not God, Sorry. it was their power, everything revolved around growing in power, and in verse 4 and in verse 5, God describes the soul of this person as a soul that is puffed up, not upright and arrogant, and let's talk about this for a second,
0: now, this is not what the
1: Greek says, but it's what, I, it's what I hear when I read puffed up, when I hear puffed up, I think of a balloon, very soon. Balloon is filled with what? Helium. Good. Balloon is filled with helium. Now, if you know anything about helium, which I don't, I have to look it up, <laughs> helium is colorless, odorless, tasteless, and it's the second lightest element in the known universe. Just a little bit of scientific impression Now, what does this mean? It means that a balloon is. Like the king of Babylon, an arrogant man. An arrogant people are like balloons filled with a lot of nothing. And illusions of great power. So you kind of look at a balloon and you see it high, and you're like, man, it's, I, I don't know. I'm thinking like a little kid for a moment. I look at a balloon and I see it high, and I'm like, and there's something so crazy about a balloon being so high. It gives me this illusion that a, that a balloon is so great, but with any in any moment that balloon. You see, there's no substance in this balloon in order to be high and actually be sustainably high. How many of us are filled up in this same way? Who give the illusion of great power? Or maybe some of us in here and we give the illusion of sustainability. Good. That oftentimes, being puffed up, and I'll just give some practicality to it, being puffed up is kinda like when you come to somebody and say, hey, how you doing? I'm all right, man. Good? That we give the impression that things are good, we give the impression of sustainability when inside anything can just pop us. I wonder if we give the illusion of great power. And I'll tell you, family, what will move us, or what will drive us to give that illusion is this lust for power, this lust for being at the center. I pray that we would see the vanity of that pursuit. I pray that we would see how much that pursuit sells us short. God says that there's no rest in the arrogant man. Arrogance is like death, and it wants everything, and it wants everyone. Arrogance says that the people and the nations are here to serve him rather than God. Arrogance is like a wildfire, and it cannot destroy enough trees. See, we look at people and we say that person is here to serve me rather than saying that together we are here to serve God. See, because at the end of the day, an arrogant man or a person filled, uh, puffed up, only sees themselves in the center. I mentioned earlier that all of us are longing for a secure footing, somewhere where we can feel safe and confident. and arrogance and self-worship. It's kind of like setting your feet down on quicksand. Life in this broken world has made us to believe that reason, science, and money, just as a few example, examples, is secure for you. Just not. It only leaves us kind of like the Titanic. Right? You guys know the story. Of what was considered an indestructible boat, indestructible ship. Built phenomenally. It couldn't stand the test once it was put to the test. When our faith is ultimately placed in ourselves, our achievements, and our resources outside of God, it's as if we're standing on a boat and saying to ourselves, I got this. Standing in a boat, in the midst of a a storm and thinking, I've got this. I can put this together. I can, in my own strength, in my own resources, through what I've experienced, get through. Listen, that sounds great, but if it's devoid of trust in God, then you'll certainly say. What we quickly find is that we don't have this. We cannot withstand the storm. We cannot withstand the instabilities of life. We think too highly of ourselves in those moments, and we think too lonely of temptation. Healthy reality check says. Life is often excuse me, life is always persistent and I am often weak. Life is always persistently trying to destroy me. I am often weak. You see, in God's economy, weakness is what get you is what is what will get you straight. In God's economy, the last is what will put you first. In God's economy, serving is what will make you great we've got it on its head, And then lastly, let's talk about the beauty of God's justice. Excuse me, the beauty of God's Son. Look at, look at verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. If you know anything about this text, this is the most repeated Old Testament text in the New Testament, so it's pretty important. The righteous shall live by faith. Look at that first word, behold. I love the fact that there's a contrast here. That word behold literally in the Hebrew or in, in the Greek as well says, it's, it, it's as if your eyes literally grew hands and they grabbed on the sun.
0: God
1: is saying here, behold, and I love that because but it's actually left up to divine revelation. At this point, we have nowhere to go. We actually have to wait for God to make things clear for us. We actually have to wait for God to allow us to see something that we've been looking at for a long time and finally understand. You see, Habakkuk as a prophet, listen, don't lose the fact that Habakkuk was a prophet. That brother knew the text. He knew the message of God. There was nothing new for this brother. And I think in the same way, some of us might be in here saying, listen, I've known this text, Rips. I've heard this text both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But as C.S. Lewis says, as Christians, we don't often need to be instructed more than we need to be reminded.
0: God is saying here,
1: listen, you've known this truth, and this is not the case of me preaching to the choir. This is me preaching truth to a sinner that's forgotten. This is me preaching truth to a sinner that's forgotten that he's saved, not by what he's done, but what was done for him. I love this contrast. His soul is puffed up. Think about this. Habakkuk's entire premise of this whole conversation with God is on the fact that he felt that God has not responded to him. That he felt that God has abandoned him and the righteous. But if you read all of chapter 3, God shut that down real quick. Listen, bro, there is only one righteous, and it ain't you.
0: There is only one
1: man who's righteous, and it ain't you and any one of your brothers, any one of the prophets before you. You guys were great men, but there's only one who's righteous. You see, I think we oftentimes, we lose sight of the fact that we are in the places that we are because God has designed it that way. And if you're sitting in here and you are a believer, someone who's confessed faith in Jesus... And the only reason why you can sit close with God is because of what Jesus has done. The only way that you can even engage God in conversation is because God has made it available to you. He says, here, behold, it's not up to our human perception, but rather divine revelation. What does that say? At this point, our hands are tied. We can't do anything. we can't say anything. But well, what can we do? We pray. God, I need you to make real to me what you said is true about me. You see, the question isn't, where are you, God? The question is, God, can you give me eyes to see you? You see, the minute we ask God, where are you, we assume that he's not here. And the minute we assume that he's not here, we assume that he's not omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. And the minute we assume that he's not everywhere is the minute he's not God. You see, God is saying, here, Behold. You said to me that I'm not here, you said to me that I'm not active, you said to me that I'm not saying anything, but really there is another option for you. Outside of thinking that I'm not here, outside of thinking that I'm not saying anything, outside of thinking that I'm not doing anything, there is actually something else that you can think. You see, because the person that says, who's not here, the person who says... Uh, that I'm not talking, the person who says that I'm not doing anything is the man who is puffed up, who is only concerned about himself. But there's actually another person you can be, Rich. There's actually someone else that you can be. There's actually another way that you can function. You think I'm not here? No. You think I'm not saying anything? No. You think I'm not doing anything? No. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Those who have healthy relationship with me have it because of their trust in what I have said, what I have promised, and in our case, what I have done. God is using this revelation to remind Habakkuk and I think ourselves what has faded from our minds because of the circumstances. Listen, I get it, man. Life beats us up. And as Christians, we're not, we're, we're not the exception. I think, in fact, Romans 8.17 tells us that we're, we're going to see it quite often. Jesus tells his disciple, he says, listen, you'll be with me in glory. In glory, You will be in glory provided. Provided. It's a huge word. Provided you suffer with me. You will be in coerah. You will be with me. You will experience glory, provided that you suffer with. Life has the tendency, family. I'll be the first to admit, to help us forget the promise of God. As I said earlier, the last thing we're thinking about in a time of suffering, in a time of difficulty, is what God thinks about us, is what God thinks about our situation, is what God has revealed of himself. Why is that such a game changer? You see, our situations tell us one thing, God says another If we live our lives circumstantially, we will die moment by moment by moment. Everything will kill us. If we live circumstantially, family, every single moment will kill us. You cannot have enough good moments to outlast the the difficult moments if we live circumstantially. If you hinge your life on the things that are happening in your life, trust me. Trust the word of God. There are not enough good things that can happen in your life to outweigh the bad things and the difficult things that you will experience. But if you live not by circumstance, but by a person. If you live trusting what one person has done in a time and in a place, and there is no circumstance that can overpower. There is no suffering, there is no trial that can overcome it. He says here, the righteous shall live by faith. God offers them an alternative. You see, the beauty of this text is that God gives us identity before responsibility. See, if you live your life according to responsibility, doing, doing, and doing, activity, then you'll definitely get tired. And it'll feel like you're in a hamster's with you. But if you realize that God has given you identity first, if we realize that God has offered us the work of another person, not the work of your own, and there is nothing that will separate you from God. Why? I, I know this all sounds cliche in the, Christian, in the Christian language and in the Christian culture, but let me say this. Why can we say so confidently that if I trust in the work of another person instead of mine that I will never be separated from the love of God? That's so beautiful. That's really beautiful. But why can we say that confidently? Because the work of this other person cannot be undone. I can securely fix myself on the work that Jesus has done for me, taking on my trespasses, Taking on the things that in my life have offended God, and that those are things that Jesus didn't come to expose in us, but in fact, Jesus came not to hold them against us, but to to absorb them for us. You see, some of y'all are probably sitting in here and thinking of some of some of the things in your heart and in your mind and in your hands, things that have been done to you, and things that you have done, that you feel keep you being in the presence of God. Family, I want you to know today that those are the very things that bring God close to you. Romans tells us clearly that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You see, the very things you think keep you from God are the very things that bring God close to you. And the beauty of God's son is that he offers us something that's not ours. You see, the heart of the gospel message, the reason why we love the good news of Jesus so much It's because Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived, suffered in the way that we should have suffered, died the death that only we deserve deserve in in order to give us something that we don't deserve. Family, some of y'all are probably sitting here saying, what can God do to bring me close to Him? What can I do to bring me close to God? We've got it backwards. We're infatuated with this idea of how we get to heaven when in reality, heaven has come to us. You see, we're trying to figure out ways to get to God and in reality, 2,000 years ago, God came to us. This is why we call him Emmanuel. You see, this is why we call him Yeshua. Because not only has God come, not only is God with us, Emmanuel, but God saves us, Jesus. Did not know what his name meant? Any Joshua's in the building, that's what his name means. God saves us. You see, we don't have to work to get to heaven if heaven's already come to us. And family, the beauty of God's son is that he's made accessible something that has always been inaccessible to us. Jesus has made accessible to us what was once ours in the garden. You see, all of life, all of life is a journey back to the garden. All of it. That everything between Genesis two and Revelation twenty two is a journey back to what we once had in Genesis one and two, and Revelation twenty one and twenty two is a restoring of what we lost. All of life, family, is a journey back to rest, uh, to, to the garden. And I pray that you would see that God is in the business in the business of restoring and redeeming, not exposing and ridiculing. I don't know what you think about Jesus and His church. I know that churches like The Bridge and other churches in our city are out to show that Jesus is about restoring lives, that Jesus is about exposing your sins only to heal them, that Jesus is only about exposing your darkness but only to shine and apply the light of life, that Jesus is about showing you your trespasses not to ridicule you but to heal you, not to expose you but to expose them, not to hold them against you but to bring them to God as an advocate, saying, "Look what I look what I died for." What does this mean for us? I'll close with these two small thoughts. Habakkuk is a massive, massive letter, and I think it has a lot to do with prayer.
0: Because if there's anything
1: you notice, this entire, this entire letter, this entire book, is a conversation between back of God. You see, family, if there's anything we learn about backing and prayer, is that our prayers are hinged on what Jesus has done. Let me say this. We often don't come to God in prayer because we don't feel that it is the best course of action. Some of us are infatuated with doing something. We're driven by I see something wrong and I need to fix it. Right or wrong? Any fixes in the building? We look at something broken, we look at something that needs attention, and we give it attention. And we find a way to fix what has been broken. And so for us, the greatest course of action is to actually do something. But I want to contend for a greater course of action. That a greater course of action for us is not, in fact, to do something, but to talk to someone. That I think our greatest course of action as individuals and as a church, if we want to see this city change, if we want to see our individual lives change to reflect more of Jesus' life, then our greatest course of action is not to do anything, but to talk to God. Why do I say this? I think the reason we need to talk first is because a failure to turn to God and pray for anything regards God as a lesser man and whatever we turn to in the midst of trial is what, we con- is what we consider greater. What we say when we don't pray immediately, when our first course of action isn't to talk to God, what we're really saying is, God, what you have done for this brokenness that's happening here in my life is not enough. Jesus, your death on the cross is, is not quite enough to deal with this brokenness. I actually have to do something about it. Now, look, I, I don't want you to misunderstand I think God does call us to do things, right? That we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we should be doers. But our confidence has to be in the greatest thing that's been done for any brokenness. You see, you look down the block and you might see brokenness. You look inside your heart and you'll see brokenness. Jesus died
0: for all brokenness.
1: And the minute we turn to God in prayer saying, God, I trust first and foremost in what you have done for me in prayer. Every moment of intimate prayer that we have with God is a recalling of what Jesus has done for us. Some of us don't pray because we believe that there is no action in prayer. There's only words being heaped up. Some of us don't pray because we believe that there is no action in prayer. And I think that we couldn't be more wrong. In fact, prayer with God contains in it a far greater action than anything any one of us can do. Say that again. I think y'all missed that. Prayer contains in it a far greater action than anything any of us could ever do. Every moment we spend in prayer or in a prayerful mindset, we are declaring that what Jesus has done is greatest. Not the only thing that's great, but greatest. When we come to God in prayer, we say, God, what you have done for this brokenness, for my brokenness, is the greatest thing that's ever been done. Help me to first trust this, so that my actions flow out of that, and not out of a self-centered, I can accomplish this. God, help me to turn to you in prayer first. Tim Keller says it this way, the quote's been up for a while. Prayer is never just an emergency prayer or a desperate, anxious gamble. God's attention to us in prayer is not based on our performance, but on parental love. I'll say it again. Prayer is not just an emergency flare or a desperate, anxious gamble. God's attention to us, the only reason why God will ever pay attention to you in prayer, the only reason the only reason why God will ever hear your prayers is not based on your performance. In other words, because the things that you have done or how you've lined up your ducks. It's never dependent on the things of you that you have done, but rather dependent on the fact that he's a parent and he loves you. Now, how does that change the way you pray? It means you pray just like a prodigal son. Who as he looked at the pigs eating and said, man, I'm hungry. My father has a house where servants eat better than I do. God, I have sinned against you and my father. You see, now the way we pray changes. Because it doesn't force us to have our ducks in line. It doesn't force me to have my life polished up. You know, in fact, I think that's so insulting to God. I think it's so insulting to God to say, I've got to get my life together first in order to then talk to God and say, look, God, I've done this. Would you now hear me? That's so insulting to the grace of God because it says that him hearing you or God showing his power through your life is dependent on your ability to keep your life nicely and you. You see, the grace of God allows for people to be a hot mess. You see, the grace of God allows allows people to be broken and not look the way you do. And not think the way you do. And not function the way you do. And you see, now we start to see people differently. Now we're not praying out on the streets and looking at the looking at the tax collector. God, thank you that I don't pray like this, man. But rather we would pray like the tax collector and say, Father oh, man, I'm so broken. I'm not even worthy to talk to you, but praise God for what you have done to make your presence a seemingly foreign place accessible to me. You see, our greatest course to action, family, is not to do something, but to talk to the one who has done it ultimately. And let our actions flow from that. What would happen if we really believed that God loved us? On the basis of what Jesus has done and not what we have done. I'll tell you one thing that'll happen. I'll give you a little story. Josh throw something at me from going tomorrow. No, seriously, because I can't see you. My son plays baseball. He runs in my
0: Dominican blood. Right? Plays baseball.
1: And every time we go to the park, Every single time we go to the park, my son is—I know this. I know it because I did it when I was a child. His main goal is to. His main goal is always to impress me.
0: Always, always to impress me.
1: And because he wants dad to be proud of him, he swings harder. He runs yes. faster. And he just plays harder. He focuses. He concentrates all the more. But guess what happens when he doesn't get a hit? Guess what happens when he doesn't, when he works hard and he's still out at first? Guess what happens when he goes 0 for 4? Guess what happens when he doesn't get to play in the infield? Guess what happens when he doesn't play the position at that play when he was in school? He's devastated. Devastated. My son is crushed. I see it in his face and my son wears his emotions on his sleeve. He is crushed when he can't make me cry. And so what happens? He plays the game and he plays hard and the coaches come up to me and they say, man, your son is playing really hard. He didn't quite get it this month or this this game and he didn't get those hits, but man, he's playing hard and we appreciate that as coaches. But my son is devastated.
0: What happens when my son
1: plays in order to impress me is that he can't enjoy the game. He can't enjoy it. He's too focused on making his dad proud. And listen, that's that's a phenomenal thing. I praise God for that. But every time my son strikes out, every time my son doesn't live up to his own expectation, guess what I tell him? Son, I don't don't lie to him. I don't tell him that he did great. I really don't. (laughs) I say, good effort, son, good effort. But I I, I pair that with, I love you so much. You know why? Because you're my son. Now just sit on that for a moment. It might not sound overly profound to you, but I think it is. Josiah, I love you simply on the basis that you are my son. Now go be free and enjoy the baseball. Go be free and play hard. In fact, I think he plays harder now because his heart, his joy is in the game. You see, what would happen if we were at the center of our dad's affection? What if we knew that we were really at the center of God's affection, not based on anything other than the fact that He is our Father and we are His children? Now, listen. If you go out and you do a good thing, if my son goes out and he hits and he hits the game-winning hit like he did the other day and got the game ball, right? What happens? We well, better be sure Dad is proud of him. Dad is very proud of him. Because he played hard and he played hard and it produced fruits. But I tell you what else it doesn't do but I tell you what it doesn't do. That even though he gets the game winning hit and he wins the game ball, I don't love him anymore and I don't love him any less. I love him the same. I'm proud of him, but I still love him the same. And guess what happens when he doesn't get the game ball and he doesn't get that hit? I still love him the same. And I'm gonna charge him to play hard. What would happen if we believe that about our relationship with God? Some of y'all might be in here, y'all have never had a relationship with God, but I can tell you, God is this God. God is the God that says, listen, there is nothing you can do to make me love you more or less than I do right now. There is nothing you can do that will make me love you more or less than I do right now. Sure, you can do something to make me proud, but it won't make me love you more. You see, why can God say that? Because his love for us
0: is hinged
1: on what his son did. Jesus gives us, family, don't miss this. Jesus gives us something that is exclusively his. And that is sonship with the father. Don't none of us deserve that? We're all adopted. None of us deserve to call God father. But Jesus made that accessible to us. Now, tell, now you tell me how that changes the way you pray. You tell me how that changes the way you approach God. To know that there is nothing that can actually keep you from the presence of God because Jesus made it accessible to you. That though you come with your baggage, though you come with your stains, though you come with your inadequacies, though you come with your imperfections, God won't receive you any less. Family, I pray that we would see that fruitful prayer is the result of Jesus' action on the cross. Prayer is the greatest and the most accessible action we can take. Some of y'all might be in difficult times, you might be going through a difficult moment, and you know what you have to do, but you just can't do it because you might not have the resources to do it. Right? Some of y'all are in a jam, something's broken in your life, something's broken in the people around you, and you know what you have to do, and you try hard, and you give it all you got, and you still fall short. Man, I wish I had XYZ. I wish I had this resource. I wish I had this resource. And I can't quite do it, but that's what I need to do. It's not accessible to you. Prayer
0: is accessible to you. And it's not
1: only the most accessible thing to you, but it is the greatest course of action you can take. You see, every time you pray to God, you proclaim what Jesus has done for you. Every time you pray to God, you proclaim what Jesus has done for you. You can scratch that last slide, don't worry about it. Family, I pray that we would not miss what Jesus has made accessible to us. The backing is a tough letter, but a beautiful one. Because I think through his wrestle, because I think through his dialogue with God, we see what God has designed for us, how God has designed for us to be in relationship with him. Some of us think Christianity to be a faith or a practice or a religion that says God sits on his pedestal, on his throne, and we can't, we can't engage with him. And though it is true, God is on his throne. He is high and majestic. But please don't lose the other, don't, don't lose the other side of that throne. As majestic and glorious as God is, he is as intimate in person.
0: The God who was far
1: away is now close. And Habakkuk gives us a picture of that. He wrestled with God as Jacob did. I think Pastor Kenny said this last week. God always wins. God is not out to change our circumstance. He's out to change our perspective. God wants us to see that what he desires is for us to share in his heart. Elijah chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 say this, close with this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses. Unable to reach God. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, things that kept you from being in relationship with God, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, or another translation say, in it, referring to the cross. Listen, Jesus has stood, has stood in our place. And I pray that we would see that the only reason why Habakkuk can wrestle with God is because Galatians chapter 4 tells us that at an appointed time, God had designed for for his son Jesus to come. What do we have in unstable time? What do we have in the instabilities of life? I think we have the sure word of God that provides for us problems. I pray that we would be people who realize that God is not a God who holds out our sin against us, but rather takes them from us and absorbs them. I pray that that we would be a people who see God exposing us of our hurts, of our inadequacies, of our filth. And God doesn't expose them to leave them out, but he exposes them in order to heal them and apply his life. I pray that we would be a people that trust in the promise of God in the face of the darkest, darkest sufferings that we would ever face. My prayer for the bridge and all of us here in New York City is that we would see Jesus as the way to God that we would see ourselves at the center of God's affection, not because we've done anything, but because he's done
0: everything. it